I'm Linda Mapes, and I'm the environment reporter at the Seattle Times, and I also write books, including my most recent, which just came out. It's called Orca, Shared Water, Shared Home. I'm very proud of it. Um, it's a deep dive into the world of the Southern resident orcas. And I will tell you that along the way in researching and reporting this book, I fell in love with one orca in particular. She's L25. She is my totem animal. She is the oldest of all the Southern residents. We think she may have been born in 1928, which means she would have lived through all of these dramatic changes that the Southern residents are struggling with today. She would have been born before the Columbia River or Snake River dams were built. She would have lived through the entire capture era. She may have witnessed the capture of her own daughter, Tokatai, still in captivity at the Miami Seaquarium which has never allowed DNA testing. So we don't know for sure that that's her daughter, but for sure she's a family member. Um, and she's also been persisting and trying to find enough Chinook salmon to feed her family through all of these years and all of the changes since there were only a million and a half people living in Washington state. And, and today, you know, these whales are trying to persist in the midst of millions and millions of us. So L25, she's, She's my totem animal. I think about how tough she is. I think about how smart she is. I think about her loyalty to her family, that she's still out there, you know, traveling all the way to California to feed her family. You know, she was last seen at the west end of the Strait of Juan de Fuca, right between the two of us. She was seen in the spring. She looked great. Um, so she's still hanging in. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Scanna, a podcast about oceans, ecoethics, and the environment for fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. I'm Mark Laren Young, and I've written several books about orcas, including Orcas Everywhere and The Killer Whale Who Changed the World. Now, I think there are a few killer whales who've changed the world. The first is the star of my book, Moby Doll, the first orca ever displayed in captivity. The next, Scanna, inspired Greenpeace to save the whales and also inspired the name of this podcast. The third is Tahlequah, the orca who displayed her dead daughter for 17 days in 2018 and showed the world that orcas love and grieve and need our help if they're going to survive. I covered Tahlequah's story here for Scanna and for various publications, but the Seattle Times coverage of this amazing orca story was truly epic. And that epic coverage was mostly courtesy of Linda V. Mapes, who recently released the beautiful book, Orca, Shared Waters, Shared Home. As always, Scanna exists because of the generous support of our Patreon patrons. So if you like what you're listening to and want to hear more interviews with people who are making waves around the world, please support us at patreon.com. Our patrons do get all sorts of cool perks, including sneak peeks at our upcoming documentary version of The Killer Whale Who Changed the World, and my new book, Sharks Forever, which is being released into the open waters this fall. And now, Linda V. Mapes on saving whales, demolishing dams, eco-politics in America, and how Tahlequah changed the world. The current strong will make 
so since we're doing this in these strange times we're living in, how are you and where are you? So I'm speaking to you from my house, which is in the Green, Greenwood neighborhood of Seattle. And I'm lucky enough to have this beautiful study that you see me in. I, I've been working at home now. It's crazy. I mean, they, they kicked us out of the newsroom more than a year ago, back in March of um, 2020, when we all thought we'd be back in a week or something. And it, it's kind of like Pompeii, you know, you go, you go in your mind to your desk and you can still see how it all used to be. And it's, it's not like that anymore. It's just nuts. So I'm talking to you in my house. The entire newsroom is being produced remotely. Uh, newspaper is being produced remotely every single day. We still put out the paper, each of us from our home. Um, much of the book was also written right here in this study. And a lot of it was written at the Friday Harbor Labs, another really lovely place right between us and the Sailor Sea out there on the San Juan Island. Um, Friday Harbor Labs belongs to the University of Washington. It's very old. It's been out there uh, for decades and decades, and it's a home for researchers, scientists, and writers. And I wrote a lot of this book looking right out at the Sailor Sea. Now, can you talk about Friday Harbor and what that means to in Orca world? Well, so Friday Harbor is on San Juan Island, and San Juan Island since time out of mind has been right in the prime summer foraging ground for the Southern residents and the reasons for that. You know, the orcas, like any fisherman, they don't just fish anywhere. You don't just like wing a hook into the water randomly, right? No, <laughs> you go where the good spots are. And who did you learn that from? Well, probably from your elders. You know, they, they, they take you where they always used to go. Well, the orcas do the same thing. This is traditional knowledge that's passed on generation to generation. And since the orcas co-evolved with the Chinook salmon, they've known that the west side of San Juan Island is where it's at in the month of August and July and June and May. Why is that? Well, because that's when those big, fat, juicy, succulent Chinook that they really want are headed home to the Fraser River Delta. And they've learned to use that west side of San Juan Island, which is a steep, sheer wall going down to the bottom as almost a fish funnel. And they just crowd those fish up against that rock wall and they just nail them. So that's their spot. It's always been their spot and it's their maritime culture there. That is their spot. But what's poignant is that they're not really showing up in the San Juan Islands anymore. They've only been seen twice so far this summer and only quickly. They came in, they looked around, eh, nothing here and left again. Why? Because the Fraser River runs where you are, are crashing. They're just crashing. I mean, the Chinook runs there at this point are listed for uh, your Species at Risk Act. And down here, many of our runs already are listed under what we call the Endangered Species Act. And, you know, Chinook are in trouble throughout their range. And for the Southern residents, this is dire indeed. This is their preferred food, especially in the summer. And so they're, they're smart, they're adaptable, they're athletic, they're changing. Their foraging range. They're they're starting to be much more of a coastal animal. They're spending much more time out at the far west end of the Strait of Juan de Fuca rather than in those nice protected inland waters of the Salish Sea, which was always their summertime home. And so that's sad. You know, we're not we're not seeing them anymore. Uh, mostly, it's sad because of what it means. They're having to work harder to get their food. You know, they would rather be where they always were. That worked for them. That was that was easy picking. So now they're having to be out there on these bigger waters, coastal waters, uh, to try to get fed. 
Well, I was also thinking of Friday Harbor Center for Whale Research <laughs> because that's where, you know, but that's you where know, they've been. There's a real center <clears throat> there in a lot of ways. It's Center for Whale Research. It's the, it's the center of the orca world. I mean, a lot of researchers are on San Juan Island, and if they don't live there, they returned there every summer to go do their monitoring and, and investigations. And you know what? Um, the whales are now so infrequently seen uh, on the west side of Salmon Island that they've actually all decamped. They're all now doing their work out on the west end. And that tells you something, doesn't it? And, you know, Ken Balcom, who's the founding director of the Center for Whale Research, I, I have a real soft spot in my heart for Ken. You know, he's been following these whales since the 1970s. And so he's watched this change over the years. And it used to be that he could literally sit out there in his yard and just watch them go by at least twice a day. You'd wake up to the sound of their blows out there on a summer morning, you know, and now you know where he's living? He's living out in Port Angeles. He's, he bought himself a ranch out there on the Elwha River. Why? Because it's actually closer to the whales than where they are now. He also just loves to celebrate those big fat Chinook salmon now returning to the Elwha River because of the removal of two dams on the Elwha, which has been spectacularly successful. There were 8,000 Chinook going back to the river last year, and I bet it's even more this year. And guess who else is showing up at the mouth of the river? Yeah, <laughs> the Southern residents. I mean, they, they hear the dinner bell. Wow, the idea of Ken Balcom not being in Friday Harbors hurts my brain. It should. It tells you something, doesn't it? I mean, he still goes there, but it's no longer his hang. I mean, because it's not where the whales are. It's just stunning how quickly all this has changed. I mean, I think about this often. You know, we, we colonizers have been here only 150 years. Hear that? 150 years. That's like a snap. That's a blink. That's, that's nada. And yet, look. I mean, look at the alteration, the destruction, the disruption. We've gotten really rich and created these easy lives for ourselves. And we've done it at the expense of these beautiful animals that were here first. All of nature that was here first. You know, when we talk about sovereignty, it, it comes from this place. It's embedded in these animals and in this place and, and in the first people. And so it, it, it's something to really pause and sit with and think about. And, and also think about what do we want the next 150 years to look like? Can you talk about your work at the paper and how you how you became the environment reporter and some of the amazing things that you've covered? Because it seems like quite the ride, but it all seems to connect so beautifully. Thank you. Well, you know, newspapers are wonderful creative collectives. And, and like in every community, things come up. And so what happened in my life in the early 1990s, I joined the Seattle Times in 1997. So I can't even believe I'm coming up on 25 years. But you know, when I when I got there, they hired me as a business reporter, and uh, they quickly stole me and, and stuck me on Metro to do uh, stories for for Metro rather than the business pages. And um, and so I started covering, um, as a matter of fact, the unionization campaign for farm workers in the packing houses in um, in Wenatchee. I was working on farm worker housing and these issues of equity and um, and food justice. And then things started changing. I, I started getting into more environmental stories and then something happened, which is what always happens in our community at the newspaper. Someone's mother got sick and they needed someone who could go out to Nia Bay and cover the Macaw whale hunt. 
<laughs> the Macaw Nation was going to start hunting gray whales again for the first time in 50 years. And they needed somebody who could go out there and just stay. And I was like, well, get Linda to do it. <laughs> so I packed the cats and I, I moved out to this cabin down at Neo Bay with a photographer, Alan Berner, who I dearly love. I've worked with him for more than 20 years. And he got a little cabin and I got a little cabin. And we just stayed out there for six weeks and there was no hunt. <laughs> And there were all these reporters from all over the world, right, to cover the big hunt. Well, there never was a hunt that season. But I had this marvelous situation with, with a boat at my disposal and time on my hands and a photographer. And so what we did was what any intelligent journalist would do, which was go door to door and meet people. And I ate so much pie and I drank so much coffee and I made so many friends and I learned so much. Um, so that was the beginning of covering Indian country for me, this deep immersion experience at the furthest tip of, um, you know, the lower 48, in a pretty remote Indian reservation, which has always been the place of the Macaw people. They were never moved. They were never made part of a confederation. That's their spot. It's always been their spot. Uh, they call it the, the place of, they call themselves the people of the rocks and seagulls. And when you're out there, you understand that. It's, it's a remote, wild, spectacularly beautiful place. And when I came back after that experience, um, I was assigned to cover Indian country full time. And I did it for 10 years. And I think that's very unusual in a, in a mainstream um, North American newspaper. And then in 2015, a good friend of mine who was the environment reporter left and went to National Geographic. And I was actually off on a fellowship at the Harvard Forest. And I get this phone call from my editor, hey, Linda. That's how these things always start. Hey, Linda. <laughs> he says, would you do the environmental beat? And I'm like, sure. So when I came back, um, I kept uh, the a specialty in covering indigenous people but i also picked up the environmental coverage so that's how it's been you know ever since and it has been marvelous the things i've learned the things i've seen the things i've been able to witness on behalf of readers all over the pacific northwest and people who read us all over the world on the web it's a you know the seattle times is a second biggest paper on the west coast other than the la times we reach 1.8 million people in print and online um so it's a real privilege to write for a general audience about these animals and these nations and these people of this place. Um, yeah. What floors me working in, I mean, I've worked in a lot of newsrooms and with a lot of newspapers in Canada, the level of support you receive, the idea of you're just going to go down and hang with the macaw. I mean, here, that would be a, yeah, we're gonna send somebody down for the afternoon, <laughs> maybe know, to get some color. I and know. So Look at the orchids, look at hostile waters. I mean, we spent 18 months on that. We published five special sections on bright white stock. Madness, right? Nobody does that in American newspapers. And then we went on and made it into a book. And you know why this is happening? It's because we're independently owned. We're family owned by this very stubborn local family that's now in its fifth generation of publishing. And they see themselves as a public service company. And so... You know, we have a motto at the Seattle Times, which is news you can't get anywhere else. And that's our mission that, you know, we we go after things that are about this region. And so something like a Macaw whale hunt or the, the terrifying story of the ex extinction crisis of the Southern residents, that's our gem. And we take it very serious. And we have a big room of fantastic uh, journalists, whether they're graphic artists, photographers, news producers, writers, editors, you know, hostile waters. It wasn't just yours truly. It was this big team of people who came together in a collaboration to make everything from mini documentaries 
to um, to the narrative reports that that I wrote in in this fantastic embedded immersive experience. I mean, when you read, for instance, um, the special section we did on sound and how orcas use sound to hunt, you know, we took people literally under the water. They could experience an orca hunt and hear an orca hunt, and we can do that today in newspapers. It's it's a fantastic time to be working in this business. The tools that we have to tell stories are better than they've ever been. And our audiences are bigger than ever. So it's a tough time for, for newspapers. In some ways, we've all heard that story and it's, it's true for us too, but we've been innovating. We're now, um, we're like NPR. We go out and we find people to support our work. Um, we have several teams at the paper that are fully endowed by uh, donors. They have nothing, no control at all over our coverage. They give the money and they walk away and we go off and do good things. So that's helped us. That's saved a lot of jobs. It's um, it's enabled us to actually keep hiring and grow our coverage at a time a lot of newspapers are having to contract. Hostile Waters was astonishing. Can you talk through that and the book that it became? Yeah. I feel like anybody listening to this must have seen at least part <laughs> of your coverage you know, of Telequa and Hostile Waters, but... If yeah. you can walk through, that'd be great. Sure. Uh, and, the, and the series is at seattletimes.com. It'll be up there forever. So if you haven't read it, please dive in. It's all there, all five parts, and you can watch the videos. And I really do recommend the online um, version because there are a lot of special features that you don't get in just the paper. But, you know, the way, this story really started for us in crisis. It, it, it happened because we had a new managing editor come into the paper from somewhere else. That's always a good thing. Fresh eyes. And things kept happening, you know, like there was this uh, survey crew that went out and they do this every year. They've done it every year for 20 years. And they went out to survey uh, for the abundance of Chinook and their body condition on the outer coast of Washington. And the survey crew came back and they basically wrote this 911 sort of report to their bosses saying, you know, we caught so few Chinook, we thought maybe there were holes in our nets. We thought there was something wrong with the equipment. And they were completely freaked out at the utter lack of Chinook out on the outer coast. These are juveniles that have just come out of the Columbia River. And I wrote a story about that. Um, and I wrote another story about this orca crisis and that orca problem. And, and this editor, his name is Ray Rivera, he's since moved on. He walks up to me in the newsroom and he says that magical thing that every good editor says, why don't we connect the dots? <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. Why, why don't we like pull it together for people instead of this like random story after story thing? And so we sat in his office and we thought about it and we thought, why don't we make the orca the main character and just go everywhere they go? And we're going to create this package uh, and we'll bring it out. We'll bring it out in January uh, and it'll it'll be beautiful. And that's what we'll do. I'm like, sounds good. And I start doing my reporting and so forth. And then what did I tell you earlier? I said, something happens, right? This is how my life goes. I'm, I'm sitting there working away on my project that I think I'm going to bring out, you know, many, many months from now. And, and what do I hear? I hear from Ken Balcom that there's this mother orca whale who's uh, given birth to a cat and that I had only lived for half an hour. And yet she's still holding on to it. She won't let it go. And that she's swimming around the Salish Sea in a high summer season with her baby this you know 300 pounds seven foot long baby calf perfectly intact beautiful female calf and she will not let it go and i thought all right okay she won't let it go i'm not letting it go i'm gonna go follow her everywhere she goes 
I don't know where this is headed. I don't know what's going to happen, but we're not leaving till it's done. And that's exactly what we did. We, we begged and borrowed rides on boats. The Center for Whale Research was very, very helpful. So was the Whale Museum at Friday Harbor, uh, taking us out to follow along from a very far distance as she carried that cow. And I'll tell you something. I don't think she ever dropped it. I think this finally fell apart. 17 days, more than a thousand miles. And I filed story after story after story. And Steve took what I still regard as the iconic photo of this entire series, which is Mother Orca Telequoc carrying that cow. And it's the sunset light in, in, in matter of fact, Canadian water. And, um, you know, you look at that picture and you think, God, it's so beautiful. What could be so wrong that this animal that's been there for 10,000 years cannot successfully reproduce? You know, and so we, by the time we wrote that last story, when she dropped her calf, there were 6 million people reading that story online around the world. And you know what? I think I know why, because this wasn't just an animal story. It was a story about a mother who happened to be a whale. And anyone who's ever lost anything they cared about knew what she was going through. And, you know, scientists know that these very sophisticated, intelligent animals grieve. And that's what she was doing. And I, and I think people were just bowled over by that. And so she's the whale who changed the conversation. You know, suddenly this was no longer just one more endangered species or some random black and white wildlife out there. These are families. These are families. Families with deep emotional connections between one another. Families, as a matter of fact, not that unlike our and, and so that just completely changed the way people saw the Southern resident orca crisis. And in our, in our newspaper, once this story happened, we realized that we needed to take a whole different approach. That this couldn't just kind of wander along and come out you know, six months later. We needed to cover the breaking news as it was happening, even as we worked on these special sections. And so what we decided to do was just you know stay with the breaking news, keep, keep coming, and then really launch on this thing. So the first thing we did was go north. We went north to see the land of the northern residents who are the same animal. They're also obligate fish eaters. They don't eat marine mammals. They're just like the southern residents, same animal. But they're doing great. They're multiplying like mad. And so our central question was, okay, let's go see this control group, if you will. Why are they doing so well? What's so different for them that they're doing great while the southern residents are just crashing? So that's how we started. And we carried that story all the way through their migratory range from up north in the Broughton Archipelago in, in BC, all the way down to um, Southern California, where they go. So it, it was quite a journey. I'm sure it was more than 17 days and more than a thousand miles, but in some ways it, it was very much inspired by Tahlequah and, and what she taught us, which is that these whales are at the breaking point. It floors me that you were working on host. I thought host I'd always assumed that hostile waters was inspired by the response to the Tahlequah story. It blows my mind that you were on that before the Tahlequah story. Yeah, we started it. She just made us floor it and added many more people to the team. We blew it up, you know, and, and that that is something that I'm so proud of that we just really responded in the moment the way we did. I mean, and we responded because readers demanded it. I mean, Honestly, you wouldn't believe the responses to that story. People sent in poems. They sent in recordings of dances that they had done for her. They sent in pictures of memorials they had created. There were people walking around downtown Seattle in orca suits creating um, 
with votive candles, having memorials for her at the at the courthouse steps. I mean, this just really touched people, it, and it should. You know, the day it doesn't touch us, that a that a that a mother can't keep her baby, we we sh we sh something's very wrong. It's good that people were so touched by this, and people say, "Oh, it's just an emotional response." Well, thank God they still have an emotional response to an extinction crisis. I think that's a good thing. And it's a good way as a writer, as a reporter, as a journalist to connect people to the larger story, because that's really what we sought to do was penetrate to the roots of this extinction crisis. What was it really about? Why was this happening? How are we connected to it? And what can we understand needs to change if we're going to have truly shared waters and shared homes with this animal? I've heard you talk about getting a call from a politician who I know you haven't named but who couldn't sleep. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? You know, this to me was another really good sign, honestly. I mean, we, we tend to write off public officials uh, cruelly as inured to responding emotionally to the crises in our midst. That, oh, they're stale. They don't really care. And, and tend to be very cynical. And we shouldn't be because honestly, there are people in public office who, who are there because they actually care very, very deeply. And I heard from one of these people saying, you know, I'm, I'm unable to function. I can't sleep. This has got me so upset. And I thought, well, thank God. <laughs> good. That's a good thing. And, and that person wasn't alone. I mean, this response was from so-called ordinary people um, of all kinds, but it, it traveled as well into public officials in tribal and non-tribal governments at all levels, it's it was something that really shook people. And I think that's a good thing. Can you talk about Talakwa's political impact? Because it looked to me like Jay Inslee was running for president <laughs> almost on a Save Talakwa platform. It sort of blew my mind. Yeah, I know, I love that. Um, she had an enormous political impact. You know, the, the governor had appointed a, a, a task force on orca recovery actually before this started with Tahlequah. It wasn't in response to her. It had started before, but but when she um, when she began to go through her crisis moments, you know, it, it changed the texture of those conversations. Those task force things. You know, when I first heard task force, I thought, oh no, <laughs> nothing's going to come of that. It'll just be some super boring something or another. And it, and that's that really isn't fair. You know, they came out with a lot of uh, far-reaching recommendations. Uh, in some cases. These were the very first uh, regulations ever proposed uh, for whale watching in in Washington State. This industry that um, you know is a it's a pretty important impact on the whales. It's a, it, it's the only um, it's it's one of the few that you could kind of turn a dial on. You know, you could actually regulate it by through the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. Whereas other things such as shipping and ferries and that sort of uh, impact in terms of noise that, that was a lot harder to, to deal with. BC ferries, what are you going to do about that from Olympia, Washington, right? But um, the whale watch industry, that, that's something that the governor's task force um, really went after. They also really looked at the Lower Snake River dams and, you know, some of these really big fundamental questions about what kind of changes do we need to make. And they made a whole suite of recommendations to the legislature. Um, and once they got to the legislature, um, you know, they actually managed to make an impact in several important ways. And several of them, I think, will be generationally important. And one of those was a toxics reduction. You know, I, I am shocked, amazed, grateful that the legislature passed a bill that makes pregnant women 
and orca whales, two of the groups of primary concern in terms of reducing toxins in the Salish Sea. Wow. wow. Yeah, exactly. And that's a forever commitment and it's still being implemented and, and all that. But I mean, we did it and it goes even further than California in terms of toxics uh, reduction at the source. So that's really exciting. And that happened because of the Orca Task Force and Mother Orca Telephone. That's just one thing. As I mentioned, we also uh, created some of the first regulations on whale watching in our state, and we also increased the distance. Uh, and we completely exclude uh, baby whales, that is a whale one year or younger, or any southern resident uh, that's thin or in other ways stressed that can't go anywhere near those animals. So they're off the table. We created a, a little quiet safety zone along the west side of San Juan Island, no whale watching there. So it, it did make some changes, not as much as some people wanted. Some people wanted a total shutdown. And in some ways, you know, with the orca whales not even going there anymore, they kind of solved it themselves, right? They just like left. But um, so that was a real change. Furthermore, we enacted some uh, tough new regulations on, on the transport of oil in the Salish Sea. There's There's been a Kind of a move to these tug barge tows and uh, regulated those to make those safer to try to prevent spills every way we possibly can because an oil spill in the Salish Sea would just be a complete disaster. You could never clean it up, not a big one, because of all our little embayments and our beautiful coastline and some of that stuff. You don't even know what's in it, like tar sands oil, you know, that's a cocktail, it's different every day, it sinks. I don't hate clean that up. So, so yeah, they, they. They took real steps and there's more to do. You know, the federal government in our country is looking at um, reducing fishing quotas uh, during years that Chinook abundance is depressed. Some people think there ought to be no fishing on Chinook and look at you guys. I mean, Canada just kicked it out of the park in terms of fishing restrictions. They just enacted some very tough restrictions on uh, Chinook fishing, which took me by surprise. They had this press conference and I dialed in and I was like, okay, okay. And then, and I said, well, so when is this going to go into effect? Expecting they were going to say, oh, in 18 months after a study or whatever. And they were like, oh, well, now. I'm like, oh, <laughs> okay. Wow. Is that how you do it in Canada? Unless you're talking about old growth, in which case you're still cutting it down. Cutting it down. Yep. Cutting it down. Yeah. Can you explain the Snake River Dam situation? Because, yeah. Okay. yeah. Okay, so let's do a little geography lesson. Let's talk about Chinooks then. They they live in a very wide range of territory from Alaska all the way down to California, not unlike the whales. Um, so their geography is mirrored. Furthermore, the salmon people who depend on salmon are in the same geography. And so you have this overlay of salmon and orcas and people, particularly the first people who really depend on Chinook salmon and steelhead and sockeye and chum and pink, you know, all salmon really are vitally important to the bioregion. And so the lower Snake River dams in that very large footprint of the Columbia River Basin and into the Fraser and into Southeast Alaska, down to Central Valley, California, let's focus for a moment on the Columbia River. So it's the river that divides Washington and Oregon, and it continues all the way, um, there, there's a Northern, a northern leg of the Columbia that goes up where you are to the source, but there's also a leg that goes east and it joins its largest tributary, which is the Snake River, which comes out of Idaho. So the Snake River is the Chinook bedroom of the Pacific Northwest. 
this is where the vast number of Chinook salmon in the Columbia Basin used to be produced. And why is that? If you've ever been there, you, if you have never been there, you need to go. If you go to say the Salmon River, or, uh, any of its forks, you will see what the native people call the breadbasket for salmon in the Pacific Northwest. This is pristine habitat, and most of it is in federal wilderness areas. It is just, it is scratches perfect salmon habitat, clear water, gorgeous water, riparian zones that have never been wrecked, very little, very, very little development of any kind whatsoever. So it's perfect for salmon if they could get there. And this leads me to the discussion of the dams. There are eight main stem dams in the main stem Columbia and Lower Snake. Eight. These are very large dams. They're run of river dams. They're not storage dams. They do very little for flood control. They do provide navigation through a system of locks all the way to Lewiston, Idaho. Lewiston, Idaho is a seaport next to these dams, like 425 miles from the Pacific. Um, and furthermore, they make power. They make a lot of power. Uh, which goes to the to the grid and is sold throughout the Pacific Northwest. The Lower Snake River dams are the four inlandmost of those eight dams. So they basically they're all in Washington and they're in very uh, remote country on the Lower Snake River in basically wheat country. This is the Palouse. It's it's beautiful territory. I mean, it's basalt cliffs and um, very open, very wild. And these, these dams were very recently built. They were built in the 1960s and 1970s. The most recently completed is Lower Granite, the inlandmost, and it was finished in 1976, which is like yesterday. I mean, I was like in high school. So this is not some like, you know, long time deep history, but yet people have built an entire uh, livelihood and set of expectations on these dams. You have farmers, very large growers in the Ice Harbor Pool, which is near Pasco, Washington, irrigating out of that water. And these are some of the largest farms in our region and they're owned by um, large corporations like for instance, the Harvard Endowment and Berkshire Hathaway and the Mormon Church. So it's not like these are little bitty family farms, but they are worked by people here in Washington. Um, and they produce all kinds of goods that are exported all over the world, everything from alfalfa to onions, you name it. So you have irrigators on the Ice Harbor Pool, and then you have um, wheat growers further inland who are who depend on barges to get wheat to market at a very affordable price, very efficiently. And then you have the power production, which um, it's about 5% of the region's power, which is not very much, and can be replaced for other sources. Um, and so the debate about the four lower Snake River dams was really blown up by Congressman Mike Simpson, who's a Republican from Idaho, who back last year said, hey, you know, um, we can replace the benefits of these dams if we just put some money behind it. But the fish need a river. They don't have a choice. If there's four dams, these are just four dams too many, you know, if they can, they can do four. We know this from the better salmon return rates to the Yakima River and the John Day River. Uh, off of the Columbia. These are important tributaries from the Columbia. But if you ask them to go four more dams, they can't make it. We're down to less than 50. That's not a mistake. 50 returning salmon in many of these tributaries in Idaho now, five years in a row, which is a quasi-extinction standard. So he came out with this proposal last year to say, hey, 
let's let's get together and talk about how would we replace the benefits of these dams with you know big piles of money, and what would we do to make make this work out for people all over the region, but also bring back the fish so that you know we wouldn't sacrifice them for this lifestyle that we've gotten used to, especially now that there are more alternatives for energy production, especially now that there there are other ways to get wheat to market. Um, and so he put that question before the region and and has really changed the conversation. And it, it's come at a time that we're, we're continuing with in our, in our country, a very long running litigation over the Colombian Snake River dams and their effect on salmon. And that litigation is ongoing. Um, and, and so you put together this, this salmon war that everyone's pretty tired of, especially people who operate businesses that depend on the status quo. They'd really like some certainty. And the decline of the fish, and it's just getting worse with climate change. And, Put it together with the decline of the orcas, which depend on those fish, and, and I think, you know, Mike Simpson really, really caught the sense of urgency in the region. And while his proposal has really been struggling to get any momentum in Congress, he's definitely got the attention of people talking who were not talking before. And I can give you an example of that: these irrigators that I mentioned, they're they're actually saying, you know, we we hate dam removal, but we want a solution. We want to be able to keep farming. So this idea of you know send money our way so that we could extend our irrigation straws and re-rack our pumps so that we could keep farming even if those dams come out we're interested in that so you know others have really pushed back and said you know please don't change anything and and so that's kind of where we are right now in Washington we're sort of high centered on this on this discussion and I think people are really really looking to the U.S. senators from Washington State and our governor to provide um, some leadership say, okay, you know, this is where we're going, this is what we're going to do, here's what it looks like. And, and it's been pushed very hard by the tribes. This is a very important piece of this that's a new development. Tribes from the Columbia Plateau and in the inland um, areas of Idaho have joined together with the saltwater people of Puget Sound and the Salish Sea together and said, we want this. You know, we want, we want dam removal on the Lower Snake. And we want it because we are salmon people. We may have been at war in the past with one another. We may have even served with the U.S. Army to go be scouts against some of these other tribes. But today we stand together as salmon people. And we, and we know and the science shows that um, these fish are on their way out unless we do something and do it urgently and on a very big scale. So I've watched this debate over the four lower stake river dams now for, I shudder to think, but it's nearly 20 years. And um, it's different today. And I think it's different because the animals are in so much trouble and the climate is changing and, and people just sense that it's time. This debate is mature. We've tried everything else at this point and it's really try, time to try something new. Can you please talk about the impact of removing the Elwha? Oh. Because I, I, think, I don't think people realize what a dam removal can do. Yeah. And I know that you do. I'd love to talk about it because it's actually hopeful. <laughs> Imagine that. I mean, I want people to feel actually hopeful in this conversation in general, because what I always say to people is, look, you know, the world's got lots of problems and most of them we haven't any idea how to fix, you know, curing cancer, world peace. Obviously, we're not doing really well on world peace, especially right now. Um, but this one, we know how to do this. I mean, if we decide that we want to make a river healthy, we're really good at that. We have a great track record. We have all kinds of expertise. Um, and 
And here's what it looks like on the LWA. I mean, back in 1992, the US Congress in the United States passed a law uh, calling for removal of two dams on the Elwha River. Now, this is a big deal. These are huge dams. One of them is 110 feet tall. The other is 210 feet tall, and they were built in the early 1900s with no fish passage. And so for 100 years, they sat there blocking uh, passage of Chinook salmon and all the other species to, uh, to their home waters. The only, there was only five miles of the lower river left available to them. And the Elwha is home to all five species of salmonids, and it was always home to the biggest salmon in the Salish Sea, the beautiful Elwha, Elwha Tai. These are Chinook salmon that reach spectacular size because they had to thrash their way all the way up to the Elwha headwaters, which are at the, is at the foot of the Olympic Mountains. And yet, uh, you know, by the 1990s, these fish had terribly uh, declined because they were confined to this lower section of the river. They had virtually no soft sediment in which to dig their reds because all that wonderful sediment from the mountains was stuck behind the dams. They had very little large wood to create that beautiful complexity in the river that splits the flow and creates plunge pools and log jams and side channels, all that beautiful habitat that salmon need, all that was stuck behind the dams. And then the temperatures were too high in the summer, which would create disease because these reservoirs basically became giant heat sinks. So these fish were in serious decline. Congress passed this legislation to come to the rescue and also rescue the people in Port Angeles because these dams were privately owned by Crown Zellerbach Corporation, which was not willing to spend what it would take to bring them up to modern environmental standard under a relicensing uh, that was necessary because those licenses had expired. So they were just gonna walk away which would have killed all kinds of high paying jobs at the pulp mill, which were powered by the dams. So Congress came out and said, no problem, we'll take out the dams, we'll fix the fishery and we'll provide replacement power from the power grid to the mill. So you'll still keep the jobs. Well, this was a sweet deal for Crown Z. And of course they said yes. And Port Angeles after some back and forth also saw that this was the best solution for their community. And finally, took 20 years, believe it or not, um, the money started to flow and those dams came down almost 10 years ago today. And um, I would say that the thing that has shocked everyone is, is not that the fish came back because that's what nature does, right? You make room for nature, nature surges into it. Nature really does abhor a vacuum, that's true. <laughs> Um, and you all know, as well as I do, here in the Pacific Northwest, you, you leave your car parked too long, things start growing on it. I mean, this is a place where life finds a way. So people knew that uh, recovery would happen. What they had no idea was how quickly it would happen and how dramatically. And then it wouldn't only just be the fish. I mean, I think the thing that I love as a reporter who's covered this now for a while and written a book about it is it was all about the fish and everyone talks about the salmon. But I love to talk about the dippers. This is a beautiful little aquatic songbird that um, very quickly after dam removal suddenly uh, stopped migrating away from the Elwha River and just stayed year round. And very soon after dam removal, the females supersized. They like lumped up. Why? Because they suddenly had access to coho eggs. And so they got really big and husky and so healthy that they started having not just one round of eggs, clutches as they call them, but double clutches. So this is a songbird for heaven's sakes. I mean, everyone was talking about salmon and what this would do for salmon. 
but it truly is a full watershed scale recovery that's reaching to all kinds of other animals. There are more eagles today in the lower river than people have seen in a generation. Why? Because all these fantastic forage fish are back. And, it, and not only that, but Washington's newest beach is at the river mouth because all that beautiful soft sand and sediment rinsed down from the high mountains and rebuilt the beach and went out into the near shore. And seven feet, seven feet of clean, beautiful, soft sand in the near shore now. And, and so suddenly we have a crab season again. And next it'll be clams. So it's, you know, it's, it's very exciting. And um, if people haven't been to visit the Elwha River, they really should go see it. I think one of the real shocks to me is the reservoirs, which were these vast expanses, more than 600 acres of drained lakes. You know, when that when that was all exposed, people thought, eh, what's this going to be like? You know, we're going to have 600 acres of scotch broom and blackberry. <laughs> but the National Park Service, uh, which ran the recovery, um, very, very smart what they did. They went out and they started uh, gathering seeds from the Elwha watershed at the correct elevations years before dam removal and raising plants in a greenhouse and also storing these seeds. And so right as soon as those lake beds were, were exposed, they broadcast seed, they planted live stakes, they put out plants. You walk those lake beds today, you cannot see the river. There are trees over your head. It's nuts. I mean, if you didn't know what used to be there, you wouldn't be able to tell. And it's not even been 10 years. Wow. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to get into this with you is that when I was speaking at Superpod, I realized that Canadians and Americans were focusing on two very different sets of things and weren't aware of what environmentalists on the other side of the border were looking at, right? Yeah. Like I had heard pretty much nothing about the Snake River other than from conversations with people like Ken. Yeah. And when I was at Superpod, nobody there was talking about Kinder Morgan. My, my wife, Rain, was the person who gave a speech there about Kinder Morgan going, I think I'm going to throw this into our talk about Granny because... Yeah. They're all looking at me like, what pipeline are you talking about? So I'm wondering what you've come across in terms of the differences between Canada and the U.S. in terms of how we're approaching the, the orcas and the extension well, crisis. You know, it's interesting. Canada has, has been a real heartbreak for us down here in the States. Now, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, man, that was tough. We, with a, our State Department of Ecology in Washington came out against that. The tribes... Um, here in Western Washington, they came out against that. They traveled up to Canada to tell their story about why that was just, not, you know, absolute violation of their treaty rights and, and a violation of the rights of uh, First Nations and, and should not happen. There was all kinds of data about the risk to the very uh, fragile Southern resident population with any increase in noise in their, in their waters. And, and, you know, the National Energy Board up there in Canada, they looked at all that and they didn't disagree. They just said, well, this is in the national interest. And so, yes, we, we, we admit, we, we concede that even a small increase in the risk of noise for the Southern residents will, not could, will impede their recovery. And, and yet, you know, they, they just... Um, they just said this is in the Canadian national interest, so we're going to hit, go ahead and do it. And they did. And then when there was, of course, massive uh, civil disobedience and pushback, and this very interesting 
uh, civil war really between the interior of Canada versus the coastal cities, you know, Vancouver for one, BC as a as the entire province. What they do is they nationalize the project. So it's like, okay, wow. <laughs> Alrighty then. I guess this is what we're doing. But I, I, I don't think it's over, honestly, because I just I just gotta believe that when um that thing actually really starts to be even more present in Metro Vancouver, that I, those like the Salukuk people and others, I just can't imagine they're gonna just not throw down. I mean, I just think that those mothers and grandmothers, I mean, I've heard them. I know what they have in them and I know that they need it. So I, I don't know what's going to happen next, honestly, because Canada's very determined, the developers are very determined, uh, and so are the First Nations and so are their allies, you know, so. That was not over, you know, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, that was a big one for us down here in the States. Um, we wrote about it a lot in, I guess we'll, we'll just have to see how that one comes out. I, I certainly don't think it's over, but, you know, for the Southern residents, there's more in Canada that's stressing, which uh, includes the expansion of the cargo handling facility out there um, at the mouth of the Fraser, right? That's that's right where they go to fish. And so that's going to be expanded. They're already struggling with the big coal port. Uh, you know, there's a lot of action right where they need quiet. And there's a lot of, and there's more, 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 more shipping volumes. You know, there's so much shipping traffic right now, they can't even dock the ship, right? They're sitting out there at anchor with all their containers of stuff. Uh, so everything that humans are doing with all of this activity and commerce and so forth it's great for people it's great for business um it's great for making money which was the whole reason canada wanted to do the pipeline it's because they want to sell that oil to china and overseas right it's try to get better prices overseas it's not because there isn't enough oil for uh for people in the sales sea including washington where a lot of it goes and that's where the jet fuel that flies jets out of seatac airport that's where it comes from that's where where the gasoline in the cars all over Puget Sound, that's that's where it comes from. It comes down that spur um, down here. So, you know, it's uh, all these things that we do for our comfort, convenience, and commerce are, are not good for the Southern residents. And that's just fact. Well, it feels like your response to fish farms has been different. It feels like on most things, Washington's been leading the way. Although... I'm sure if you ask Canadians, they go, no, no, they can't have, they can't be doing better in America. That just goes against our sense of national identity and ego. But I, I know. feel like Washington's really led the way. It's true. I mean, fish farms, you guys are starting to uh, take another look at that. And the First Nations have really been uh, pushing that hard. And, and with every good reason, some of those farms are in waters that they never seeded. It's like, what are you doing here? It's not unlike the First Nations who are looking at some of these logging companies and said, hey, we never fought a fought a war we never signed a treaty what, what are you doing that's like that's a fair question these so-called crown lands like what the hell are they anyway uh, is the question they're asking and, and down here in washington you know we have treaties with tribes and uh you know those were violent forced treaties of session i'm not going to represent that that was some like civil delightful process of course it wasn't and indeed, we're still trying to live up to those treaty rights and uh, too often failing at it. But nonetheless, those documents and those, those rights, including off-reservation uh, for many tribes exist. And they're very powerful documents that guide development today in Puget Sound and, in, and beyond. And 
and they affect everything from water quality to, um, you know, where you can build what. That coal port that they wanted to build up there at the Lummi Nation in Cherry Point, right south of the border from you all, that got killed by the Lummi Nation. They, they went to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers while they were still doing their environmental impact statement and said, hey, this, this absolutely affects our treaty uh, crab fishery and our treaty protected fishing rights. And, you know, that's it. You're our trustee. Your job to protect these federally guaranteed rights that we reserved since time immemorial, fix it. And so they get this phone call from the colonel. Says, okay, fine, we're, we're stopping the EIS. We're just like walking away. They didn't even finish the study, they just stopped. And that happened because of the elimination. So that's how it goes uh, down here. And I'm not saying that's easy or that it didn't take an enormous amount of resolve and effort on behalf of the elimination, but those treaties are very protective and they're very powerful. And um, the tribes also have a lot of allies and, and their governments have, have grown enormously in their capacity uh, since the 1990s. And, and, and there's a renaissance of uh, culture and capacity in these tribal communities. And, and you're seeing the effects of that in their presence in, in the environment and in regulation of the lands and waters that they care about. Are you seeing many other differences in terms of the issues and how the two governments are dealing with them, Canadian and U.S. government? Yeah. Trees. Okay, it's been illegal against the law to cut down old growth on what we call national forests in Washington state and in the Pacific Northwest since 1994. That's a long time ago. That's the Northwest Forest Plan. And in the state of Washington on state lands, you don't cut anything that um, sprouted any earlier than 1850. And some people want to roll that you know, forward in time to not cut anything that's um, older than 100 years. So that's 100 years. Right now in BC, you got more than 700 people who've been arrested trying to defend the last 1% or less of old growth on Vancouver Island and in, and in BC. So, you know, we look at that down here and we can't even believe it. I mean, I, I was talking to my editor today about the situation in Ferry Creek there at Port Renfrew, just getting pretty desperate. And, and the logging right now isn't happening. Well, you know why that is? Because it's too hot, right? The whole heat film. And I thought to myself, did I just say that sentence? It's too hot to cut the old growth. Well, sometimes you can't even believe where we are, right? It's like, we can't put it together that the climate is in so much trouble that we're in this historic heat domes and yet still you're cutting old growth in BC. So we can't we, we can't believe that and there isn't a scientist in the world who can defend it. What have you found in terms of differences with dealing with NOAA and the DFO, the two government agencies? Big differences, big differences. So NOAA. Um, that's our National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. They're, they're very, um, I find them very transparent and responsive. I've, I've often had a lot more trouble getting answers and so forth out of DFO. And maybe that's just because I'm down here and they feel like they don't, they don't need to do that. And they're exceptions. They're definitely exceptions. Um, but I, but I, have, I have found DFO actually to be more aggressive in, in protecting the salmon fishery from the orcas. By a lot. I mean, in terms of the extent of the cuts and and how quickly they made them. On the other hand, you know, the Fraser River's in big, big trouble, and uh, those Chinook salmon haven't actually been listed yet. They're under consideration for listing. Um, 
So I, I think it's, it's kind of a mixed bag. They're putting a lot of money in, uh, into ORCA research, but it's mitigation money from the Trans Mountain Pipeline. So you know, that's, a, that's what I'll gently call a mixed bag. That's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, it's, I, I mean, we sort of met when I was gaslit by the DFO during one of the Talico conference calls. And yeah. you followed up on a question that I asked. And I thought it was asking, a, I thought I asked two really easy questions at those conference calls about the difference between how we were dealing with with um, the situation with, with Scarlet uh, on both sides of the border. Yeah. And I knew from various partners that the salmon cam cannon was stopped, the feeding, the feeding salmon cannon was that the Lemme Nation put out was stopped at the Canadian side of the border. And I'd heard that from numerous partners. And then the DFO went, that never happened, hung up on me. <laughs> and when you and when you followed up, they said, no, he was wrong. And I'm like, and I reached any problem with you. No, wasn't wrong. Here are the groups that told me this. Yeah. But I can also tell you that talking to other environmental persons, I, oh, I just do a podcast. I write for a bunch of indie papers. Maybe that's what happened. And I can tell you that the environmental reporters for the biggest papers in Canada have said DFO rarely gets back to them on deadline. Mm -hmm. Further, it's work. a problem. Yeah, no, it's a problem. It, it, it is, they need to do better. You know, the people have a right to know these aren't DFO's resources. They're, they belong to the planet. They belong to, to, to everyone. And everyone deserves to know how they're doing. Now, one thing I've been dying to ask you about that I've heard you talk about a little bit was names versus numbers. Because I became fairly militant on the issue of names with Tahlequah going, <laughs> I think it's a whole lot harder to care about J35 than it is to yeah. care about Tahlequah. And when I was working on the Royal BC Museum exhibit here, which I wrote, oh wow, a okay. museum thinks oh, it's amazing. And we'll I have, can't wait to see it. Now that the war is open, I want to come see it. Uh, call me when you're here because you. I'm, they've got me leading the tours of it. I'm le I've been leading virtual tours all summer. And one of my big contributions was I said, names, not numbers, if you want people to care. So the three replica whales are Scarlet. They've, they've built life-size versions of Scarlet, Slick, and Ruffles. And they've got Slick and then the number, Scarlet, then the number. And I, I harped on this so often that when I was invited to do a talk, for a bunch of scientists, they said, you're going to tell them to use names, not numbers, right? <laughs> Which I did. And it was wild saying that in front of a room full of ologists going, you're right. You, you have the entire world watching the Tahlequah story and you would only refer to her as J35 and you wouldn't even use calf. I get not using baby if you think that's a cross line, but you broke out neonate. <laughs> I said, seriously, you're talking to People Magazine. Could you have found a way to make this feel less emotional than talking about J35 and her neonate? And I felt that, you know, you really changed the conversation by going, by referring to her as Tahlequah. But I know that you have to switch based on who you're dealing with. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Are, are you talking about the uh, the conference with Andrew Trice? Is, is that the... Yes. Yeah. I, I heard that whole exchange, and I think it was then that I fell in love with you. I thought, who is this guy? I, I love this guy. I just thought it was marvelous. Taking oh. it to him for neonate. Uh, you know, I, I think that it's a funny thing. I, I have to tell you that I some of the Talqua, thank God, had an elegant name, right? It's a beautiful name. 
and has a beautiful name. On the other hand, I have to tell you, I really do hate some of these other names like Rainbow. And I, I don't know, they just are so new agey. And to me, they sort of trivialize this magnificent animal. So I'm not crazy about a lot of the names. And so honestly, sometimes it's sort of personal choice whether I'll, I'll use the name or the number. But I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, calling them by this sort of widget number is bizarre and insulting. Uh, and and so it's uh, it's struggle, and I I know that in my own writing in the newspaper, I, I I go back and forth depending on who's who and what's what. I just wrote a story about K twenty one, the animal who disappeared and was the skinniest whale, orca whale ever seen alive, even worse than scarlet. So, and I called him K twenty one, but I, it goes back and forth, you know. And for instance, L twenty five, her name quote unquote is Ocean Sun. I'm not crazy about that name. I gotta tell you, I'm just not. So, so it varies. Oh, let's well, rename them. Give them all beautiful names like Cedar and, you know, I don't know. Oh, I'm so with you. <laughs> let's I, give them beautiful names rather than these stupid names. I have trouble with the ones named after cookies. Okay, Oreo, I mean, please, really. It's just bad. Not but good. I loved what you, you said that in one of your interviews that a friend of yours said, she's not a data point. It's and I thought, true. I thought that true. was just so lovely. Yeah, no. I no. agree. I agree. That that actually came uh, from some friends of mine on San Juan Island when I was at Friday Harbor Labs writing the books. I would do these writing the book. I would do these read alouds of chapters while there was still information. I'd go over there and they'd make dinner and I'd sit by the woodstove and read. And then we talked about it. I mean, this, these were my friends um, up there on San Juan Island and. And that's where that she's not a data point thing came from. It's like, and it's like, okay, I, I, I hear that. That's good. I get that. I do. But I'm still not calling anybody Oreo. I won't do it. Well, <laughs> it's funny with the names versus numbers. Like one, another thing was, it fascinates me that in Washington, it's almost always killer whale. And here now it is almost always orca. I yeah. was actually floored when I was working on the museum exhibit and they said, we are just using Orca. I went, really? Yeah. They went, yep, yeah. we're just using Orca. I agree with that. And John K. before took me to school on that. I asked him to read my book for accuracy before it went to press. And he had a lot of really great suggestions. And that was one of them, knock off the killer whale. We call them Orcas, call them Orcas. And so I did. I went back into the text and I changed it all to Orca. And those are, that's the word I use in the newspaper as well. Every now and then I relax and say killer whale, but orca, that's what they, that's what they're called. Call them an orca. Yeah. Nice. Now, yeah. one of the other things that I found, that I found with scientists and on both sides of the border is going to such great distances to go. She's not grieving. She's doing something that looks like grieving. I'm like, really? <laughs> like, uh, uh, I just keep thinking, I've seen humans at funerals who appear to be grieving, who are really happy that that person's in the box. I don't think Tahlequah was appearing to be grieving. Yeah. And, see, and the same thing I've, I've found where I've, it looks like people bend themselves into pretzels to avoid saying, these superpods miraculously appear for births and deaths, but they're not celebrations or memorials. Yeah. They just only happen when there are births and deaths. Yeah, I think we've 
conversation is changing and maturing now very quickly. I mean, Carl Safina in his beautiful book, What Animals, um, it's called Beyond Words, which is such a great title, What Animals Think and Feel. That, that's a really good book I recommend to anyone who wants to think some more about this. Um, and, and if you look at the work of, of Joe Gatos with the CDOC Society and, and, and you read uh, some of the scientific papers about um, cognition and, and emotional capacity and social structure in these families, you know, what you very quickly begin to understand is the right way to think about these is animals is these are families and, and they comprise an ancient society. I mean, you talked to John K. B. Ford about it. That's what he'll tell you. He said, you know, these are, these are ancient societies. And when he said that, I thought, oh, <laughs> they have language, they have culture, which they transmit um, generation to generation. Their language is very, very stable. It's probably the oldest uh, language in the animal kingdom. Uh, it's beyond our, our own little tiny ability to understand this, right? Let's remember something about the orcas. People say to me, oh, they're just like us. And it's like, don't flatter yourself. They're, their brains, the body size are enormous. They have uh, very, very complex brains. They have enormous parts of their brains that we don't have. We don't even know what they're for. We just know whatever it is, we can't do it. You know, we don't have it. So they live in these remarkably tight family groups. They never separate. The youth, the, the young never leave their mothers lifelong. Um, and they and they live in they share space in this ocean called the Northeastern Pacific, the transients, the offshores, the northerns, the southerns. And they do this peacefully. They they don't go to war, they don't beat each other up the way we do. You know, we can learn a lot from that. I love that. Can you talk about how seeing Talakot carrying her daughter changed you? Like what that was like? Well, I mean, I, I think the thing I remember the most is is the moment in which Steve took that picture, you know, because we were all alone out there at that point. We were out with a sound watch boat and the operator uh, killed the engine. So it was completely silent. And it was just us and her. And um, you could hear her. You could hear her breathing. You could hear how labored her breathing was. You could see how she was arching her back uh, in an unnatural way in order to keep carrying that calf. And, and you could see this, this sight of this animal who was having to make up her mind with every single dive down to go get that baby again. She has to come up to breathe. She comes up to breathe. Uh, she's got to decide, am I going to go get it again before the current carries it away? And you cannot watch that. And I just think anything other than a deep sense of compassion. So yeah, it it, it transformed for me the understanding of uh, of these animals to think of them as individuals, number one, and as families. And um, and I and I continue to think about them in that way. And I think it's very important for us as people with our far inferior senses. In our much younger society, the orcas have been around for six million years on the planet and have been here for 10,000. Um, it's very important for us to take a step back and remember that we have a lot to learn from them. Very cool. Can you talk about what you'd like us to do for the orcas, what you would like to see humans on both sides of the border doing right now? Right. Well, the title of the book is Shared Water, Shared Home. It kind of says it all. I mean, we're going to have to do something that societies, at least um, the society that, that's been colonizing and 
utilizing this place for the last 150 years uh, haven't really done, which is step back, let them win, make space. I mean, if we don't do that, if we just keep um, piling on everything we want to do and use and be and grow and build and so forth, it's no, there's no question how this is going to come out. I'm from the East Coast, New York. And when I came out here in 1992, people said to me, oh, you'll see, we're different out here. And I thought, uh-huh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see if you're different or if you just started 150 years later. And I think the jury is out on that question. You go down to California, I have this searing memory of working down there uh, when we were covering the orcas in California and going out on Sacramento River with this poor biologist who's trying to keep the winter run shinnick alive uh, after they built Shasta Dam, you know, 300 feet high with no fish passage and confining this cold water animal in the baking hot Central Valley floor. It's going great, let me tell you. So we spent our 105 degree day out on the river with him and see just a few poor dissolving spawners who have struggled back to the river. And, you know, we walk across this baking black asphalt parking lot and collapse in a crummy restaurant where we order a salad and like six glasses of water. And, <laughs> The waitress, she takes our, my credit card. She says, oh, Seattle Times, what are you doing down here? I said, oh, well, we're here to write about orcas and salmon. And she said, well, I don't get cable, so I don't know anything about that. I thought, oh, great. You know, here I am um, writing about the Sacramento River, which a generation ago was the second largest producer of salmon in North America. And she doesn't even know it's a salmon river. And that lack of awareness, the day that happens, that's when the story's done. You know, we have to look at every, you ask me, what do I want people to do? I want people to look at every river and remember it's a salmon river. And everywhere we live is worker country because that riparian area is what nurtures the salmon that feed those orca whales. So whether you're in Eastern Washington or, or some urban area, you know, that's actually orca country because it's salmon country and we're salmon people. And that awareness, that changes everything. It makes you think about your impact on that place and how you can, you can make it better and not worse for these animals that were here long before us. And can you please talk about why you have hope? Oh, because we know how to do this and it works. I mean, this, this uh, restoration of salmon habitat taking out uh, dams, many of them, many of which don't do anything for anybody anymore. It's just like trash sitting out there from the 1900s. I can name you five dams right now that nobody even uses and they're just like sitting there because nobody can afford to take them out. Um, so taking down deadbeat dams, taking down dikes, uh, re taking out shoreline armoring, which is destroying the nutrition of sand to the beach, which kills the forage fish because they can't lay their eggs there. I mean, this um, undoing of the mistakes of the past or the taking out of infrastructure uh, that's just like in the way of salmon and forage fish and these natural processes, if we just do that and put the money into it, which we have, and let these animals um, continue on with their lives, they will. I mean, you can count on nature in a world in which we wonder if what can we count on anymore? You can count on nature 100%. Every time, everywhere. If you give it the chance, it will come back. And that's why I'm hopeful, because we know what to do. We know where to do it. We're really good at it, and it works every time. 
Fantastic. Thank you so much for doing this. And thank you so much for the book. It's beautiful. It's a truly beautiful book. Well, thank you for your interest. And thanks for having me on. And please keep the conversation going. Excellent. All right. Great to officially meet you. Likewise. And I look forward to seeing you in the museum. Excellent. See you soon then. Okay. Bye. Thanks again for checking out Scanna. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss upcoming interviews with Franz DeWall, author of Mama's Last Hug, Joshua Zeman, director of The Loneliest Whale, The Search for 52, and Nadine Pequeniza, director of Last of the Right Whales. If you want to help us share more stories about oceans, ethics, and the environment more often, please join our pod at patreon.com. I'd like to thank all our Patreon patrons, including Susie Venuda, Robert Anderson, Simon McNair, Nancy Campbell, Darren Learn Young, Philip Ashdown, Mike Whitley, Christina, Howard Siegel, Solomon Siegel, and Yosef Wask. Scan is also brought to you by Orca Publishing, the awesome publishers of my three books about whales and two books about sharks, all for younger readers. And of course, our wonderful friends at Eagle Wing. Be sure to check out our show notes at Scanna.org and subscribe to our Scanna magazine on Medium, which features an excerpt from Linda V. Mapes' Orca, Shared Waters, Shared Home. It also features an excerpt from my book, Orcas Everywhere, that explains that yes, orcas are whales. Follow us on social media and share the show with your friends. Share it with everyone. Reviews on your favorite podcast provider are always appreciated. If this podcast didn't work for you, I'm Ezra Klein, and this is The Ezra Klein Show. This podcast is produced in Saanich, BC, traditional territories of the Wasanich, Songhees, and Esquimalt peoples. Scanna is produced by the always awesome Rain Banu, audio engineering by Rain Banu and Isabella Almashi. The Scanna site and much more are courtesy of our wonderful Wizard of Web, Katie Brown. Scanna's theme, Scanna, is by Leah Abramson. Huh?